Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Clay Reichenbach, and this is the premiere episode of The Examined Athlete. This has been a long road for me, and I'm super excited to start this journey. I'm super excited about our first guest. Today, I'm joined by Philip Umber. Philip is a former Major League Baseball player, a three-time collegiate All-American, College World Series champion, one of 23 individuals to throw a perfect game in the major leagues, and a former teammate of mine. I really was so incredibly impressed with Philip, his willingness to share his stories, and in particular, discuss his struggles the way he did on the podcast is incredibly inspiring, is incredibly powerful. You're going to find that he's honest, he's insightful, and I believe everyone will walk away from this episode with a new perspective on elite athletes. At times, I think you may find that it's a little Rice University heavy. However, I think there's also some great lessons in those stories. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe. Please follow us on Instagram. Please follow us on Twitter. Please spread the word. We've got some absolutely outstanding guests coming up, and I can't say enough about what Philip did here today. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Umber. All right, Phil, we're live, man. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Tell me, how often does baseball come up nowadays for you? Fairly often. Um, really, more so now with my my son. He's nine now, and and so he's he's into baseball. And so we're we're usually out in the backyard or at the baseball field. You know, when I'm not at the office, and so um, that's a lot of fun. Um, but as far as you know, my career, it does get brought up quite often, mostly because of perfect game sort of things. In the business that I'm in, a lot of times that's an easy way for uh, someone else to introduce me to someone. I don't bring it up myself, but it's kind of an icebreaker. Like, hey, fun fact about this guy or whatever. So, How do you feel about that? Um, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me. I don't know why it would, but it's one of those things where I don't think it's that cool uh, that I played major league baseball or did any of the things that I did because I was the one doing it, and I'm just I'm just me. You know, but I understand why other people find it interesting, and so try to indulge them as much as as possible. Without, I don't have a bad feeling about it when it gets brought up, but I'm not going to be the one that that does that. Well, let me embarrass you for a bit. I'm going to list off some accomplishments, and then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. So, you went to college for three years. You were a three-time All-American. You were a national champion. You happened to be the winning pitcher in that game. You represented your country playing baseball. First round draft pick of the New York Mets, number three overall. One of 23 people in MLB history to throw a perfect game. You had a day named after you in your hometown, which is interesting in itself. Made millions of dollars playing a game. You became a husband. You became a father. You made some great friends along the way. What do you think 15-year-old Philip Umber would have said if I read these stats off to him and said, that's the career? Probably would have taken it because fifteen-year-old Philip Umber didn't have any, you know, illusions that he was going going to go on to play professional baseball, let alone major league baseball, and even college baseball. It was kind of one of those things like that. Man, that'd be cool. 
but yeah, I mean, what would he be most excited about from that list? Uh, probably the money, I would say (laughs) it would be the thing that you, because when you're 15, a million dollars sounds like what's the show that, that with the ducks to be a millionaire, you know, the duck diving into the cartoon, the bed filled with with gold coins or whatever. Scrooge McDuck. Yes, exactly. So you're like, yeah, I've made it once I got a million dollars. So. That's probably what he would what he would think. What's thirty eight year old Philip Umber most excited about off that list? Um, you know, I'm proud of the work that I put in, and uh, I would say the perseverance with a lot of the things associated with baseball. But most thankful for my family. There's no no question about that. Absolutely. I mean, if I, you know, you go down the list, would you give this up? Would you give that up? Last on that list is going to be my family. Well, when I was 15, 20, let's say 21, so I can say we were having a beer at Rice, it certainly would have been the perfect game, certainly would have been the money. But at 38, having two kids, number one, two, three, would be my kids, my kids, my kids. Mm -hmm. And I I find it interesting how things change and how perspective change. And one of the through lines of this platform hopefully will be Talking to young people more about that early in life, not that it's not okay to chase those material things, but to realize that you're going to get to a point where those things are super important. They build your self-esteem, but your value lies elsewhere. So anyways, I know it's a pretty heavy way to start, but let's take me back to your background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? My hometown is quote unquote Carthage, Texas, but I, I really grew up about eight miles outside of Carthage. It's not really a suburb, but it's a little community outside of Carthage. How big is Carthage? Carthage, uh, I think the latest population is probably a little over 6,000 maybe. Oh, wow. Okay. So everybody knows everybody, and whether you like it or not, everybody knows everything about you. And But it's a great place to grow up, and the good thing about a place like that for someone that's into sports is there's not a whole lot of other things to do besides get out and play ball. Did you have siblings? I'm embarrassed to say I don't even know. Nope. Only child. child. Who introduced you to the game? Who were your influences growing up? So I really got started playing uh, just because it was something my friends were doing. Play ragball, t-ball, that sort of thing. And my dad would help coach. You know, he didn't have a huge baseball background. I don't think he played high school baseball. But he was always willing to help organize the team and practice and stuff like that. And so it was something he and I enjoyed a lot together. We watched a lot of baseball together. But probably my biggest influences was just watching our high school team. They were one of the top teams in Texas when I was eight, nine, ten. The, the sweet spot of that age when you're really getting into sports. And so those guys that were on the varsity team in 1990 that won the state championship. I mean, those were my heroes. And so if I had a goal at that time, like with baseball, it was like one day I wear that red and white jersey with dogs on the front. That was really, you know, a motivation. I can so relate. I had a older friend. He was probably eight years older than me that lived two doors down. And he brought me a high school hat, a Pflugerville High School mm-hmm. baseball hat. And it was my prized possession. I can so relate to that. You mentioned at 15, you didn't have these aspirations. Was it not clear that you were athletically gifted at a young age? Um, when did that, when did you start to I don't, separate? I still don't know that I'm athletically gifted, but if I remember correctly, <laughs> you could dunk a basketball. Yeah. Rice. Yeah. yeah. And, and so. yeah, I, don't, I can't do it now, but, um, <laughs> so probably when I was 15, I, I wasn't a guy that was like one of those early bloomers. Like you wouldn't have walked out to a 12 year old baseball tournament and said, that's the stud right there. I was a good player. I knew the, 
you know, knew the game, the nuances of the game because I'd watched a lot of baseball and had good teachers around me. I had a good arm. And so I was always one of the better pitchers. But when I was 15, I mean, I, it wasn't like I was already throwing, like you hear some of these guys at 14, 15 years old, and they're already throwing in the 90s. I wasn't that way. I played on the freshman team, moved up to the JV my sophomore year, and, and just kind of took that normal path of this guy's a good player. But I didn't have people really beating down the door to try to get me to come to school or talk to me about the possibility of play, playing professional baseball until I was a junior or senior in high school. And I just didn't know a lot of people that had done it. I mean, I knew some guys that had gone to play college baseball and a couple of guys that had played minor league baseball, but I was so far from that. I didn't have anybody in my family that had done college athletics. Like, I just – I didn't have that sort of background where I thought this is a possibility because, hey, I know this guy. And so that's kind of where I was. Well, one of the things I'm incredibly interested in was confidence and where self-confidence comes from, where self-confidence is cultivated – and for me, it was certainly being, I think, gifted athletics at a young age and hearing adults say, man, this kid can throw a football or man, this mm -hmm. kid can hit a baseball. And so I was just curious what your level of confidence was coming out of high school. At some point, you started to separate yourself, correct? And you were a first-class recruit, is that correct? Was this junior, senior year? Yeah, I would say, yeah. I mean, my junior year, I started getting some, some looks and some offers from some schools. And at that point I, I was starting to develop and had grown quite a bit, but really it started more my senior year that I could tell a difference that I was, because like I said, we had a lot of good baseball players. We went to the state championship game my senior year. I wasn't the only good player on the team, but by that point I was the best player on the team. And so I was extremely confident. And I think some of that has to do with the fact you're 18 years old and you're full of testosterone and you feel like, okay, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to prove them wrong. And the other thing was, I think one thing that gave me a lot of just intrinsic confidence, um, not from having to hear people tell me this, but I watched my dad. My dad was a shift worker and he worked 12 hour shifts, days and nights at a power plant. That's what he did for 39 years. My mom was a school teacher. She was always very driven to be the best teacher she could be. Eventually got into a position where she was kind of coordinating the teaching policy for the, the school, so to speak. And they always instilled my grandparents the same way. My, my great-grandfather was a farmer and a rancher, and you couldn't outwork him when he was 75 years old, you know. And so I was just around a lot of people that valued hard work. And so one of the things that gave me a lot of confidence is I knew that I was going to outwork the guy next to me. Like he may be more talented than me. He may have been given more, you know, natural ability than I was, but eventually I'm going to beat him because I'm just not going to quit. So I think that's really where inside I knew, okay, you may be better than me today, but it won't be long before I pass you up. I'm glad you phrased it that way and framed it that way because I want to be clear. There's a difference between self-confidence and entitlement. And you're describing the self-confidence I'm talking about, not the entitlement that I deserve something I don't. You then sign a scholarship to play baseball at Rice University, mm -hmm. which at the time is one of the elite baseball programs in the nation. I'd like to hear about your confidence coming in as one of the top recruits and compare it to mine as I came in at a similar time but mm -hmm. was – 
at the bottom of the class. Was your confidence high coming in? Were you coming in thinking, I'm coming in to start day one? Was there a bifurcation between, hey, some self-doubt, some self-confidence? Where did you come in as a freshman into Rice? I think there's some of both. I mean, I think before you step foot on campus, you have these ideas in your head like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to step right in there and be a weekend starter. And I didn't know a ton of the other guys in my recruiting class because I was from the middle of nowhere in northeast Texas. Most everybody else was at least from the Houston area. So they, they played against each other, kind of knew each other. I'd met Paul Yanish at an all-star game the summer before. So he was really the only guy I knew in that class coming in. I knew he was really good, and he was coming in as a pitcher and ended up being a, probably the best defensive shortstop I've seen. But, yeah, at that time he was intending on pitching. Were you sizing guys up like oh, yeah, I was? Oh, yeah, for sure. I can remember yeah. the initial team meeting. I didn't know hardly anyone, but I was sizing guys up. And I can remember picking out Eddie Deggerman, who those from Rice would remember was a pitcher. But he was from L.A. He was kind of L.A. cool. And I was just – I was like, that guy's got to be an infielder. That kind of figuring things out, I was extremely confident, though I didn't come in as a top recruit – but I also had this part of me that was a little bit trepidatious and worried about competing. I'll tell a quick story. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, I can remember talking to her before the first game. And I was like, well, we're going to be on TV. We we're playing Minute Maid Park. I'll be starting. She goes, you're starting. And I remember I was so offended. I was just like, what? <laughs> what do you, of course I'm starting. Right. What are you thinking? So there was that part of me that was probably hubris. But then there was also this part of me that was worried about showing up and not knowing if I could hang with these guys. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious if you had that too coming in at a yep. little bit of a different level than me. No doubt. And I think, and I don't know if it was the same when you got there, but I remember my freshman year walking into that locker room. And at that point, they're, they're already established as, a, like you said, a national powerhouse. And there's a lot of difference between a barely 18-year-old freshman and a seasoned 21, 22-year-old senior that's, that's been around for four years, especially having played for Coach Graham for that long. I mean, these guys are – they're grown men. And I was still – I was a young pup. And I remember just kind of being intimidated just by that. And, like, am I going to measure up here? Like, and what are these guys going to think about me? And I, I do remember a little bit of – I wouldn't call it hazing at all, but it was just more of like, hey, you're going to get in line. And if you don't like it, we can talk about it later. You know, it was, there was some, some of that going on. And, but that's part of what made us a good team. And then the other thing was uh, Coach Graham, I think, just has a way of intimidating people just with his presence, you know, and the way that he speaks to you. And so that was different for me. I played for a tough high school coach. Coach Graham's on a different level when it comes to that. Let's let's get into that a bit. So you come in and very quickly you're successful even your freshman year other than the obvious, what do you think made those teams great, specifically your sophomore year, but all three years? What was it? What were the intangibles other than one of the best arms in the country was likely on the mound every night? What made those teams great? I think it was the way that we pushed each other. And I, I would say everybody that was involved with that team in those years drove themselves. They didn't have to be told hey, you need to pick it up. And, and if they did, then it was a teammate that did it. Coach Graham ran a, I would say, pro-style program, yep. meaning he wasn't going to make sure you ran. He mm -hmm. wasn't going to make sure you lifted. Right. It was just expected. And if you didn't, mm -hmm. then you would fall behind or someone on the team 
would kick you in the ass being yeah major. and and then on top of that he he would call people out individually in meetings and i think the accountability part of that really went a long way and at the same time we had a lot of good guys like we just had guys that weren't going to get in trouble they were going to take care of their schoolwork they weren't going to have trouble with being eligible and you know all those things and on top of that like you said they were all going to work hard they were all going to try to do the right things on the field at the same time we had we had a lot of talent and when you have pitching like that which we did have a lot of good pitching you're going to have a chance to win most every single game and i think that's the separator right now going on with the college baseball playoffs the teams that have pitching that's how you win pitching and defense that really oh we decide. literally had the best arm in the country every single night I, between you and wade for those that are listening my junior year phillips junior year we had three pitchers go in the top eight picks had a first rounder the year before that in david arzma the next year eddie deggerman is easily the best pitcher in the country for the next two years with a sub one era and what's that, crazy about that is eddie he didn't even pitch no. like you think about god that good he hardly ever pitched i know, remember though your junior year he wasn't pitching a little known stat that year he led the staff in strikeouts per nine right. and he took a perfect game at Dishfalk in Texas into the sixth inning in a midweek game. Yep. So he had those flashes and he was striking us out yep. in practice. Exactly. But there were so many arms, not exactly. to mention Baker. That's um, just how deep yeah, and, and Josh Baker, that's it it was pretty much an embarrassment of riches. I think Coach Graham knew that, but at the same time he had a lot of a big role in that in developing those guys. Probably coming in to college, I was probably out of those three, out of Jeff and me and Wade, I was probably the most polished, ready to start in college. Wade and Jeff had a, a bunch of talent, but they were pretty raw. Um, but with all of us, he knew how to push our buttons. He knew how to say, you know, like get the most out of us, put us in the right situations that would develop us the right way. And eventually it all came together, like you said, our, our sophomore year. But yeah, it was a fun time to be around. Speaking of Coach Graham, one of the questions I got probably, I don't know, 10 times my first five years out of Rice was what made him successful. And it took me a while to come up with an answer, but I finally did. What's your answer? What made Coach Graham successful? Well, I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about. I think he's very intrinsically motivated and very self-confident. He's curious. Coach Graham is very well read. So I think that's a big component to kind of being a guy that can relate to all different types of people, which is important with a team and being a leader. And the other thing is he just, he's not going to accept good enough. He's going to demand the absolute best. And if you don't produce that, he's going to let you know it. And I think that's how he got the most out of his teams. The answer I came up with was this. I think some people would be surprised to know that I don't think Coach Graham ever gave me a hitting tip or a fielding tip. That was more our assistants, Taylor and Pierce and mm -hmm. Zane Curry. Sure. But what I landed on is that no matter what it said on paper, no matter who was in the dugout across from us, you were the favorite. You were supposed to win. And we had plenty of Philip Umbers, but we also had Clay Reichenbachs. And that's what I told people, and I think maybe we're missing now is that I don't care if it's Fullerton or Vanderbilt or Texas, and maybe on paper it says they're better than us, but I guarantee you we didn't believe that in the dugout. I remember thinking no matter who was the opponent, 
we're supposed to win today. And I think that's what Coach Graham did better than anyone was convince us, no, 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 you're the favorite, and right. you better play like it, and you better believe it. Right. Yeah, because when you left, we we had a great team that year too. Who are we kidding? Mm-hmm. But we went into the LSU regional not the favorite. And I remember I homered in one game and then got interviewed about it afterwards, and they were asking me questions. Can you believe it? You're walking in here and sweeping LSU? And I was like, yeah, I can you know who we are. Yeah. You know who we are? <laughs> like if they were that good, they'd be wearing a rice jersey. Right. You know, that was the attitude and not the outward attitude. It was internal. Mm-hmm. But amongst our dugout, it didn't matter. And maybe that person had hit 100 for the year. But if he was on our team and in the lineup, we believed in him. And I think mm-hmm. Coach Graham instilled that. That became my answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think some of that comes from having that chip on your shoulder of, of not being the guy that's picked. Right. So we had a lot of those types of guys. And you say, like, you know, I was some sort of top recruit. Well, Texas didn't want me. A&M offered me like 5%. Baylor picked another guy over me. So I ended up at Rice, not because I was like, man, I want to go to Rice my whole life. It was because, hey, you know, Rice wants me. They're a good school. That's great. Same with a lot of the guys. Like we had a lot of JUCO transfers. Well, they got overlooked. Coach Graham spent, what, 15 years at San Jack winning national championships and not getting a call. And so I think he was the right guy at the right place for the, the players that he was going to end up with were not necessarily the cream of the crop. We had some good recruits, but he was in that same personality mode where, you know what, y'all pass me up, but I'm going to show you that I'm the best. So your junior year, 2004, you're taking number three overall by the New York Mets. What do you remember about that time? <laughs> well, it's not a great memory because you and I were, we shared a day together, bittersweet day, I guess. So just for people that don't know what happened in 04, it still kind of hurts to talk about it like that weekend. So I go in, or we did as a team, I'm thinking we're going to go back to Omaha and repeat. I mean, we've won it the year before. We had internal arrogance. Yes. For sure. uh, well, yeah. And I, you know, at the same time, you know, we had a good team. Uh, we had lost some guys off that. 03 team, but we still had pitching. We still had some of the guys that played a lot in 03 that were full-time starters. And so we felt good about our chances. But it just seemed like it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, I remember what happened with Pendleton like the night before the the regional. He was probably our best hitter at the time. And Cole Course went tears out. his ACL and Cole Course got a bad shoulder. But at the same time, we thought we were just going to shut everybody out. Like, who cares? So we go out and play Texas Southern. I'm pitching in the eighth inning, give up a home run. We lose that game. We come all the way back through the loser's bracket and beat A&M the first game. We had to beat them twice. And the next game, I come in in the sixth inning in relief, and you hit a home run to put us up, right? To tie it. So what I remember is it was Texas. It was hot. But we lost that first game. We were still mm-hmm. confident. We come back. We beat Lamar. Mm-hmm. We come back. We beat Lamar again. Mm-hmm. We come back. The next day, we beat A&M in mm-hmm. the first game. And I think we were pretty confident. But I do remember just being worn out. Mm-hmm. And I remember who started that last game. So Baker started. Baker yep. started. And we end up getting down 3-1. Mm-hmm. And we're really tired. Mm-hmm pounding Pedialyte. People were getting cramps. Oh, it was super hot. And 
it was a seventh or eighth inning. I hit a home run to tie the game. And I'll say this, this is probably a microcosm of my career. That's probably one of the biggest moments in my career. I was never, I've never been more excited on the baseball field. Oh, I remember it. I was, I can see you coming home from third base. I was out of this world excited because it did feel like, Oh man, we may not do this. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, we're going to win. I can remember I was running around second base and Cliff Pendleton, who had a great major league career, was playing shortstop for them. And I looked at him and I said, we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. And I was that excited, which was unlike me. I'm I'm not someone to talk to the other team. And then the next inning, we take a lead. We're up 5-3. And I do remember you coming back in, but you had pitched 24 hours before, 48 hours before. Yeah, Yeah, I pitched like I think seven and two thirds on Friday, and then this is Sunday now. And I remember you were still throwing the shit out of it. Yeah, I think no. you were ninety six, ninety seven, yeah, but still throwing good. And 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 then on top of that, we're coming back to the losers bracket, and so I'm I'm warming up in the bullpen pretty much every game. If it gets close, I'm in the bullpen warming up, which wasn't a great idea. But so I get in that game, and I'm we get we get through the six, we get through the seventh, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna close the door here. And and like like you said, I mean, we're all just totally exhausted. And then the eighth inning, I, I remember like three balls that didn't get out of the infield. All of a sudden, the bases are loaded, and Justin Ruggiano comes up, who ended up having a major league career. But at the time, he's hitting under two hundred, and I throw him a fastball that I thought was a, a good pitch, and he hits an opposite field home run. He was laid on a fastball. Yeah, I think it almost hit the foul pole, which know, which yeah. happens. And and I remember just the ball left the park. I mean, there were so many Aggie fans there, so you can hardly hear yourself talk. But I mean, I don't even, I don't think I faced another hitter. I think that was the last pitch I threw in college. I went in the locker room. And I remember. I mean, I just ball. I don't know if I've cried. I probably haven't cried like that since then i, I mean it, no it was clue. yeah this is my first time hearing that yeah so i mean it was like man and so you're asking about the draft well the draft was the next day so i didn't at, remember it was that close but at the same time like yeah i mean it's great i got drafted third overall but all i can think about is i can't believe what just happened and man it it's it still stains i mean it, it was like i said pretty rough i mean there's no way we should have lost to, to texas southern like I said, I can't imagine a worse weekend to have as a pitcher, you know, lose both of those games that way. But so, yeah, get drafted. Well, move forward <laughs> a little bit. I'm glad we told that story, yeah. especially for the Rice Owls that are listening. The rest of you guys may not be that interested. <laughs> but where were you as far as were you someone who proactively set goals? You signed with the Mets. Did you sit down and set goals? Did you have expectations? You mentioned the word hubris before. I think naivety is closely aligned with hubris sometimes. That was me. I got drafted third overall. When we were pitching that year, I mean, for college, and I'm sorry to keep going back, but for college, like we were, that was pretty rare to have that kind of a rotation. So I remember like reading an article in the Houston paper one time and they're saying, who has a better rotation, the the Rice Owls or the Houston Astros? I remember that. You know? And you're 21 years old. You start to believe this a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, like I'm as good as those guys. How could you not? Exactly. And so when I went in and I didn't end up signing because at that time there was no deadline, I didn't end up signing my contract until the next January. So I'm just sitting around working out, quote, unquote. But I I didn't know if I needed to prepare to go to short season ball that summer. I didn't know when I was going to sign. So it's kind of it was really hard to do. And. So I show up, my first experience of professional baseball was going to Major League Spring Training. Billy Wagner's there, 
Tom Glavin's there. Pedro Martinez is there. I'm in this clubhouse with these guys. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm breaking camp with them. I mean, minor leagues for what? I'm ready. I've been playing this high-level baseball for three years. Well, that's not the way it works. So I go to single A and realize, hey, I, I'm actually not as good as I thought I was. And come to find out I, I wasn't completely healthy. But looking back on it, like knowing what I know now after going through professional baseball, like, gosh, what an idiot. Like, well, the, I just didn't know any better. The funny thing is, and I've talked about this, I've had a number of these conversations with elite performers, not just athletes, is that it's nearly impossible, and I've had it confirmed by a sports psychologist, to not start to derive a sense of self-worth from your success and not start to believe the hype. And it's actually helpful in many ways. The tricky part is it's not all that healthy. Mm-hmm. And the power's in the balance, as mm-hmm. a psychologist would say. Mm-hmm. And so you need to use it to drive you as you were doing, but the minute you don't make the roster and get sent down to single A, it may hit you the wrong way if you don't have your value in the right spot. It's It, it cuts both ways. There's no doubt. You start believing that stuff, and then when it becomes negative, you believe that too. Did you have any outside expectations in your head at this point, or were you really just focused on what you were doing? Going back, a lot of it starts when you're young, I think. And you asked if I was like some sort of gifted athlete. I mean, I went to a fairly small school. None of the other classmates I had ended up playing professional baseball or any other sport, didn't go on to really play anything big-time college. I wasn't even nominated for most athletic. Just something, it sounds silly, but it was kind of one of those things where I always felt like I got overlooked. And so in, in a small way, and now that I'm in a professional baseball, like I wanted to prove, still wanted to prove a lot of people wrong. And it, it was that way in college. It was, it's always been that way. Like, I think you look for motivations. That's one that's pretty common, I think. You want to prove people wrong, prove that, you know, you were better than they thought. I'm just smiling because we're all so simple. A first-round draft pick, and you're worried about proving Johnny right. from sophomore year in high exactly. school wrong. But yeah. we're all doing yeah. that. And that's one of the points I want to prove here is that even the physical outliers are dealing with these same insecurities yeah. that things they're they're not unusual they're perfectly normal and things we all have to work through so you mentioned you were injured within a short period of time you end up needing Tommy John surgery correct yeah so i mean i you know 15 starts in kind of struggled my way through single a and got moved up to double a my first start like it was basically i'm sitting in the dugout and my elbow swollen up like a grapefruit and i'm like I can't keep going. Like, there's something wrong here. So, yeah, I go get an MRI in, in New York, and he says I need Tommy John, so I want to go see Dr. Andrews. He says the same thing, and next thing you know, I'm out for 13 months. This is maybe the first really significant setback of your career other than some, some oh, yeah. things we discussed. At the time, did it feel significant? Are you still thinking, I'm going to pick right back where I left off? Well, you know, you go in and they tell you like, you know, 80% of guys, you know, get back to at least the level that they were at before, right? And I think that number is a little bit skewed because what they're saying is you're at least going to get back to, in my case, double A. What I interpreted it as at the time was you're going to get back to throwing mid-90s with a hammer breaking ball and, you know, all your command and everything's going to come back. I never got it back. And honestly, 
that was something I didn't realize that was coming for me. You at know? the time, were you still fairly confident? Oh, yeah. Back at oh, it? yeah. I had no reason not to think that. Looking back, hearing that, is this maybe the first time real doubt and negative energy kind of was introduced into your athletic Somewhat. Career? Yeah, somewhat. To kind of speed forward, you you know, multiple teams are traded to mm-hmm. the Twins. You've got a couple of other injuries mixed in there. Performance is probably not mm-hmm. where you were. Leaving all that aside, outside the field, were there aspects of Major League Baseball you were enjoying at the time? Outside maybe the the on field stuff? Very little. No. No, very little. I mean, I you know, I I like the fact that I was a professional athlete. I mean, there's there's a lot of perks to that, and you don't even realize it until you're done with it. Uh, some of the things that you take for granted. I enjoyed more than anything. I still enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the pursuit, but I didn't enjoy being on the road, going to these little no name towns, and not that there's any. I mean, I'm from a no name town, so I'm not disparaging any of the towns I played in, but it's just feel like you're just, what am I doing with my life? Like I'm just spinning my wheels here. and That gets a lot of good ball players. especially you come from Rice. Maybe you took your academics really right. seriously. Maybe you've got a degree in economics and you're playing cards on the back of the bus. Exactly. And you don't really fit in. We're not really discussing mm-hmm. anything below surface level. That gets a lot of guys. Well, fast forward to Chicago. Something clicks in Chicago. Mm-hmm. What, what was it? What do you think clicked for you in Chicago? I think there was a, there was probably a level of acceptance, you know, like I mentioned before, like, you know, I was not going to get the stuff that I had back. I think if, if I had some of the tools that they have available now, maybe I could have just as far as like understanding what produces velocity, understanding what produces those types of pitches. But when I got to Chicago the year before I was with Kansas city and the winter before that I was in Puerto Rico playing winter ball, not knowing if I was going to, have a job the following year. And I remember a scout, he was a, a Puerto Rican gentleman. He came and sat in the dugout and he said, when you first get drafted, people are trying to figure out what's right about you. They're looking at all the, the good stuff. He said, at this point in your career, and at that time I was, what, 26, we're looking for what's wrong. So what is it? You know, he's, he's like literally like asking me. Like, and so I, I remember just thinking that, like, okay, I'm not really a prospect anymore. At this point, I've either got to, you know, figure out how to make what I have work or I'm going to have to find another way to make a living. And so I just started trying to really become a command pitcher. And by the time I got to Chicago and, and got an opportunity in spring training, I was ready. I was able to spot all of my pitches, even though they weren't what they were six or seven or eight years ago. They were good enough to get guys out if they were in the right location. But I can remember, I mean, I was a teammate of yours. I followed your career in 2011 I was thinking you were going to make an all-star team. I think you were up there close to the league, leads and wins, mm-hmm. innings. You took a no-hitter late in Yankee mm-hmm. Stadium, which has to be a cool thing. And then 2012 comes around, and your second start, you throw a perfect game. Mm-hmm. Talk about your mindset there. Where are you? Are you coming back? Is the confidence coming back? Where are you still grinding? Where are you there? What's funny about that is, like, I think – when you have success, that breeds some confidence. So I had some success in, in, in 2011, and then I'm going into spring training in 2012. That's the first time I'd ever gone to a major league camp and known that I was going to be on the roster. I mean, unless I get hit by a bus. Like, I'm, I've done enough last year. I'm going to be on this team. And so it gives you a chance to prepare a little bit differently. You're a lot more comfortable. 
up until then, the times I'd been in the big leagues, I was there for 30 or 60 days at a time. That's not a long enough time to get comfortable with the guys, comfortable with how to act, how to dress, how, you know, all of those things. So, yes, I would say a lot of confidence came back. And as a result, my stuff was improving. And so going into that year, I, I mean, that spring training, I tore it up. I was probably the best pitcher we had in spring training. And part of it, too, like I had a little bit of chip on my shoulder. I, they still were saying I was the fifth starter. I'm like, I'm better than these guys. So I think, yeah, if you, your question is about confidence, my confidence had improved tremendously. When you hit on year. being comfortable, I think so many coaches or people from outside of sports thinks guys need to be pushed and they need to be hammered and competing. I was always at my best when I was comfortable, when mm-hmm. I was happy, even joking around. And I think a lot of players get a bad rap for wanting to joke or be even silly on the field. But what you don't get is that level of comfort where most people are at their best in my eyes, not when you're getting hammered or worried about your spot. I think feeling like you have your position allows you just to free up and let your talent take hold. I agree. So this perfect game, I'm not going to linger on your perfect game too long, but absolutely awesome accomplishment. And I do want to know one thing. Politics aside, it's cool to get a call from the president. And Obama, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you got to admit, the guy has some swagger here. What was that like? So it it was kind of interesting because the following day, because Mark Burley was – he was at Chicago White Sox for a long time and had thrown a perfect game. Well, Obama had called him almost like immediately after the game when he threw his. And so the next – You're week, already competing. You're like, where's my – Well, <laughs> it, but the reason I'm telling that story is is the, the next day when I showed up to the clubhouse after throwing a perfect game, some of the reporters were asking me, hey, is Obama giving you a call? And so I remember like joking with him like, yeah, I mean – uh, not yet. I don't know if he knows I'm a registered Republican, which I'm not registered, but I, I did vote Republican at the time. Anyway, I'm in my hotel room. We're in San Francisco. We play in Oakland. And my phone rings at like 9 a.m. And it's our it's our traveling secretary. He's like, hey, uh, be expecting a call from the White House in a few minutes. I'm like, oh, okay. 9 a.m. is early for a ball player, so I'm like barely awake. So few minutes later, call comes in from this unknown number, obviously. Answer the phone. Is this Philip? Yep. Uh, stand by for the president. I'm like, oh, my gosh. That's I mean, it, yeah, badass. I mean, you talk about getting cotton mouth. Like, you, it's it's hard to come up with much to say. But he was really cool, you know, and I'm sure he had a list of calls he had to make similarly that day. But, you know, he did call my wife by name. He knew it. You know, my son, John, had been born, you know, 10 days before. And so he was asking me about being a new dad and what that was like and, you know, we maybe talked for for three minutes, but man, it was it was really cool. You know, something I'll I'll never forget. Oh, that's it's definitely a cool experience. Like I said, politics aside, that's yeah. that's a neat thing. It yeah, and he's a White Sox fan too, so it was kind of oh, cool I remember too. the yeah. picture in the dad jeans. Everyone's yeah. seen it. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about something you said at the time. You said never satisfied with a game, and you even found fault in your perfect game. Mm-hmm. My question for you is, and maybe this goes back to balance, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? Is it both? What do you think to be brutal on yourself like that? Where does it fall in the spectrum of bad and good, healthy and unhealthy for you? Well, here's what I what I tell people. And I think in order to be really good at anything that's very competitive, whether it be business, whether it be sports, you know, there, there's all kinds of things that 
you know, take just a tremendous amount of drive and concentration, focus, whatever you want to call that. I don't think there is such a thing as balance. And I think if you try to do that, it's going to be very frustrating. There are a few examples of Hall of Fame type players that have tremendous family lives and did it while they were playing, but they're very few. Most people that are incredibly driven, you'll find if you look around, their personal lives are not nearly as successful as maybe their uh, business lives or, or their, their lives in sports. I don't know how you define success, probably, but divorce, very common with high level uh, entrepreneurs, athletes, drug use, that sort of uh, alcoholism, all those things. It's hard to have balance when you're competing at that level. It may be that that's how they're trying to balance that brutalness on themselves is mm -hmm. with drugs and alcohol sure. and things like that. Well, after the perfect game, things go south pretty quickly. You don't have even much time to enjoy the moment. Right. My question around that is it clearly is difficult. It's clearly frustrating. But what jumped out at me, was it confusing? Was it like, what the hell is going on? This doesn't make sense. A what little was bit. That? What was and, your and main feeling? Yeah, I mean, and you've played, you've played enough baseball to know, like, when things are going good, it seems like you, you can't miss. And when things are going bad, it seems like you can't hit. As a hitter... Every hit's falling in for you when things are going good. Well, when you're not, you're hitting line drives right at guys. Same with pitching. And that's kind of what happened with me. Like, I, I don't think that I necessarily changed a whole lot. My performance decreased for whatever reason. There's all kinds of reasons I could sit here and give you excuses. But, and once that kind of starts happening again, it's like, oh, for me, because I've already been through it a lot, you know, in my pro career, it was like, here we go again. I also think what people don't realize about the game of baseball is it can be lonely. I mean, theoretically, mm -hmm. it's a team sport, mm -hmm. but when you're in the batter's box or on the pitching mound, it's one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. I've been part of teams that were wildly successful and been miserable myself mm -hmm. because my performance was. I mean, maybe we're winning 90% of our games, but I'm not no having any fun. No so it can be a lonely sport, a sport where it doesn't feel as team-oriented because there's a lot of individual aspects. It's hard to hide. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to hide your mistakes. Was there any point where you were able to remove yourself and observe from an uncritical way and learn something in the moment, or were you just grinding at this point? No, I, I remember that. I don't really have a ton of memories of that kind of time period. You know, like you said, I mean, it wasn't long before I was out of the rotation, demoted to the bullpen, and then that offseason, you know, basically the White Sox gave me away to the Astros. So, I mean, it was all very, very quick. And then the Astros thing, it's like the time, you know, I thought, wow, you know, a new beginning, but going back to Houston where I've had the god of success, start out, what, 0-8 with like a 9 ERA or something. I mean, it's just like you can't believe how bad it's going. You could stand out there and throw batting practice and it not go this bad. And so it's just hard to get your mind around it. And at that point, for me, I was just like, I don't know that I – I've climbed the mountain once and gotten drafted, climbed the mountain again and came back from injury and, and, and got to the big leagues and got, and got myself kind of established for a couple of years. Now I'm at the bottom of the mountain again and I'm looking up and I'm like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Like it, it was really at that point, like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm going to try something here, which may work, may not work, but I want to read through some of your quotes from that time. And I'd like for you to give me perspective 
and okay. add some color. The first one is you felt hard work meant you deserve success. Add some color there. What What are your thoughts around? Let me add to that. I learned that lesson the hard way too, that hard work does not always win the way you want it to. Exactly. Is that what you learned in that quote is you, you were feeling like, I'm busting my ass. I'm working hard. Hard work's supposed to win. Well, it takes some wisdom to realize hard work does win, but not always the way you want it to. And the only way hard work always wins is if hard work is the win itself. Right. So, I mean, what were you thinking there with you felt hard work meant you deserve success? No, I, yeah. Uh, and, and I think probably at that, I don't know when that quote was, but at some point in my career, I realized that it's def- definitely not a guarantee of success because if it were, I'd have been very, very <laughs> successful on the field. But no, it, there, there is no guarantee of success and you don't get what you deserve. Who can say what you really deserve? But So like, what's the lesson there? The lesson t- to me at the end of the day, and I don't want to get, I know this is not like some sort of like Christian podcast or anything like that. Go but for it. At the, at the end of the day, go. like if we, if I got what I deserved, I would be headed for hell. Like that's, I mean... I, I, I don't deserve the life I have. I don't deserve the the chance to to spend eternity in heaven. I don't deserve any of that. I don't deserve forgiveness for what I've done, but I've been given that. So anything other than that that I get, that's just gravy. Like I'm not, you know, I, I don't really deserve any of this. Why do I deserve it more than guy down the street? You know, I'm I'm a hard worker, but I already told you I came from an environment that produced hard work. If I'd have been born somewhere else, I wouldn't have maybe had that same experience. Maybe I wouldn't have worked as hard. So would I have deserved it then? Would I deserve worse because I didn't know to work hard? I'm playing baseball. Am I even working hard? Like, that's not work. That's playing a game. So My know, if I was born in a different country, like, who knows? Like, I mean, it's it's just silly to think that way. My but favorite people do. are the people that never tell you they're working hard or never tell you they're busy. People right. that tell me they're busy or tell me I'm working, tell you hard they're working out my favorite people. Right. All right. Let's try quote number two. I began measuring everything against perfection. You even are quoted saying you beat yourself up for blowing a perfect game in the first inning after that. Mm-hmm. Maybe walk us through that quote. Did you have any sense at the time that – measuring every game against a perfect game was a bad idea? Um, no, I, I didn't. And maybe that quote comes across the wrong way. I definitely don't think I was sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to throw a perfect game every time I go out, obviously. But I think I'm a perfectionist by nature. Even now, I thought it would go away when I got done playing baseball. It hasn't. So I, I tend to obsess over small things. And uh, I know that about myself, so I try to work on it. But it's just you're always looking back and saying, well, if I was able to do that, why am I pitching so poorly now? Like, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those things where it's just like, I shouldn't have been able to do that if I'm this terrible, you know, and I know I'm not this terrible, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to explain. And some of these quotes, you know, like so far we've, we've heard two and I'm, I'm both of them like, man, I wish I could go back and talk to that guy and like, just kind of put my arm around his shoulder. That's and, what this is about. Yeah. That's what, that's why I think, Stories like yours are so powerful is because we do need to have Mm -hmm. these conversations more often. And I just met with the USA track and field sports psychologist a couple of Mm -hmm. days ago, and they have a whole department there just to speak to their athletes. One of the things she said, and she was an Olympic athlete, is she realized in her entire apartment block in Rio, there was one medal. 
and she was already a doctor of psychology at the time, but she realized one person is going home happy in this entire apartment mm. block. So if we don't reframe this experience, if mm. we don't start talking to athletes, and guess what? The vast majority of people, even in major league sports, are probably not going to have the career they want. Mm-hmm. If we don't have conversations about this and start reframing and putting our value in different places, then we have a lot of unhappy people. <laughs> so yeah, l- let's work through. I got two more quotes. Like I said, we'll see how this works. I didn't have a lot of fun playing major league baseball, which is horrible to say, but it's the truth. When did you have fun playing baseball and what was the difference? Oh, that's tough to say. I think I had a lot of fun having success playing baseball. I don't think I ever was in the in the mind frame of this game is really fun because the game of baseball is really hard. It's full of failure. But it was the thing I was most good at, and so I enjoyed that success. But once that success wasn't happening nearly as consistently, I don't think I enjoyed it very much. And so that's how I felt as a major league player. And I've told people this too. Like, I mean, I was drafted third overall. The pick ahead of me was Justin Berlander. Justin had the career I wanted to have, right? So we started in the same position, and I basically went the opposite direction, right? I mean, I, I had a, a good career. I'm thankful for what I got, but that's what I wanted. I wanted to be the guy that people looked at and said, that guy's the best pitcher in baseball. And if I wasn't that good, I wasn't happy with it. So even when I was like 2011, you know, hey, probably got pretty close to making an all-star team, threw a perfect game the next year, I still was not satisfied. And so in in a way, that's a good thing for an athlete to never be satisfied because you're always driven. But at the same time, it's hard to be happy that way. Well, I think there's nothing wrong with setting extremely high goals. There's nothing wrong with saying my goal is Justin Verlander's career. The trick is not placing your value on that. Mm-hmm. The trick is remembering that what truly makes you successful are the people that will never refer to you as a major league baseball player, your kids, your wife, your family, your effort. Mm-hmm. And how we get there, who the hell knows? But the goal setting is not the problem. It's the placement of the value. And I, what made me think of when did you have fun I think of college and Mm -hmm. I think of talking about being free and being fun. Do you remember probably six months before you were drafted, we're in the rec center with you, Wade, Eddie, Jeff, three future first rounders, and we're playing basketball in the Mm -hmm. rec center, just going as hard as we can possibly compete. Do you remember this? And Coach Graham walked in. Coach Graham walks in. I remember this, yeah. I mean, we're talking probably, I don't know, $10, $15 million of signing bows six months away, and Graham was rightfully so lost his shit on us. But I also think there's a lesson there that we were just having fun, and you guys were just having fun. You weren't caught up in this, oh, I've got to sit at my house because Mm -hmm. I have a draft six Mm -hmm. months away and I'm a projected first-round pick. I'm not saying future first rounders should go play basketball like we were doing and trying to dunk on one another, but there is a lesson there. There's some sort of a lesson there of, of how to think about your journey. Yeah. You're more than just what you do. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but that does. Yeah. Yeah. And and as far as like what I was, I think what I was saying when I didn't have a lot of fun playing major league baseball, I had fun. There was times where I was having fun while I was a major league baseball player. 
there wasn't a whole lot of fun that had to do with the baseball part of it because that to me, and, and I've not shared this with very many people at all, but there are three I, people I, who listen to this yeah, podcast. Sure. So yeah. don't worry about so, it. It's secret. Safety. But yeah, I've, I've had, I had probably a slight case of the yips from college on. I didn't throw a single pickoff move to first base when I was in college for a reason. And so that, kind of anxiety, and I think that's basically what the yips is, is just kind of anxiety. It makes you kind of not look forward to going out and, and throwing a baseball and being on the field. And, and and that coupled with a lot of negative reinforcement when you're getting feedback, oh, I threw this pitch, it got hammered over the fence. It kind of it compounds on itself, I guess. Well, we won't linger on my last quote, but my last quote I absolutely love is the accomplishments, not the story. We've been talking about that the whole time. And I mm-hmm. think that clearly you had done some work at that point, but I, I love that quote. I mean, mm-hmm. if you have anything to share on it, you can, but I think it speaks for itself. But let me take a minute. This may embarrass you, but I want to talk to you about the power of your story and specifically the power of you speaking honestly about your story. So Throughout my life, I certainly tied my identity to success or successful outcomes, not necessarily sport outcomes, but success for sure. And more than that, I tied my narrative to successful outcomes, meaning it was important to me that other people saw that I was successful and I could tell that story to them, which is clearly not healthy, but it it's also not honest. And you did an interview late in your career, which you spoke about putting your identity in the right place. You had clearly done some work at this point. I think you mentioned your kids and your family and your friends. And I followed your career closely. I don't remember any other interview. I don't remember anything you said after the perfect game. I remember that. I even remember the backdrop. I think you were sitting in the stadium, like you were sitting amongst a bunch of seats. That was a wake-up call for me probably at 30 years old. And I didn't have kids yet, which helps, Mm. but that, hey, Clay, these material things that you're placing your identity on are not as important. Those are great. Chase them. Go out there and bust your ass. But you better figure out a way to put your identity somewhere else. And I started my journey to where we are now literally based on that interview. And I don't Mm. think you realize that you talked about influencing young people earlier but it's not just young people these aren't sports lessons these are life lessons and like i said i don't want to embarrass you but here i was with a wonderful family friends opportunities made a lot of money myself and i felt like a complete underachiever and watching that interview with you started my journey and i wasn't unhappy but i was unfulfilled so i guess the point is your story's powerful it's one of the reasons that i believe sharing your story is so important that I, I really think, and I'm sorry for the soliloquy here, but I really think you can learn more from one story of a struggle than you can from a hundred stories of victory. It's just, mm-hmm. you're not going to learn a lot from your story of throwing a perfect game or your mm-hmm. story of being drafted first. You're going to learn a lot about setbacks and struggles. And again, I just, I think your story is powerful. Yeah. And I think I've gotten more comfortable uh, now that I'm not a player anymore and don't have to worry about showing weakness or whatever, but just being vulnerable and, and telling people the truth uh, about how I really felt. And it's, it's real, honestly, it's empowering to, to do that. And hopefully it, like I said, it impacts other people. 
one thing that's encouraged me to do that is now I have a son. And so, and I know like you have your daughters and, and so it really changes your perspective. You don't want them to fight the same battles that you did in the same way. They're going to face their own struggles, but if you can help them have the tools to go through those kind of struggles, then that's what you want to do. And I think sometimes people put people that are what the world would say, oh, that guy's successful because he got a lot of money or he's got a really successful business or whatever. I mean, you know, he's in the major leagues, whatever you want to say. That's how the the world or the media would, would say, well, these guys are, are who you need to look up to. They're going through their own struggles themselves. And if it can help somebody, great. I'm still trying to learn from it myself. And so it does help me sometimes just to have a reminder. And one thing I've, I've learned a lot here recently, just reading some, some good books and, and listening to a lot of good people speak is um, what is true value? Just asking like questions like that. Like you use the word success a lot. Like, what is that? What does that mean? You know, what's your purpose? What are you trying to accomplish here? Is it just you're on this rat race that make as much money as I can, stick as much money as I can back and retire as quickly as I can, do what I want to do? What are you going to want to do? Who's it going to help? And so I think getting outside of that extrinsic motivation and more into the intrinsic motivation, figuring out, and really getting outside of yourself. You look at people that are depressed, people that were, you know, a lot like me when I was playing, I wasn't having a lot of fun. The reason was I was focused inward. If I would have found someone else to focus on, try to help that guy, try to build this guy up. And I did that some, but like make that your energy. That would have benefited me a lot. I try to encourage my son to do that and everything that he does. Don't focus so much on what you're doing. Get caught up in what you should have done a little bit better, what you could have done, what, you know, why'd that go wrong? Think about who can you impact today? Who can you help today? Man, well, I, I think your story is compelling, but more than that, I think it's helpful. I think it's inspiring. I hope you'll keep telling your story. It inspired me. So thank you for doing this, man. I appreciate it. You bet. Good. Thanks for having me on.